welcome to the second episode of Issue by Issue Crisis, uh, our new companion podcast, uh, twin, younger brother, however you want to call it, of the original Issue by Issue, this one starting from the first issue of Crisis on Infinite Earths, number one, in January of 1985, and moving towards the present. Uh, I gave you the whole spiel about why I started this show last episode, and if you're you know jumping into this one, basically I wanted to cover more uh, present, more modern comics, and I think the best jumping on point to the modern continuity for backstory and stuff like that is Crisis on Infinite Earths. It restarts everything uh, or resets things to a, a certain point for continuity's sake. So I think that's good. But this is the second episode. Uh, so, well, let's get into it. We're not going to be doing any real world history because all of the comics uh, in this episode were published the exact same day as the comics from the last episode. So that means that that the stuff that was happening at that time was also happening when these came out. So let's talk about the issues we're going to be covering this episode. We're going to be covering Justice League of America, number 237. We're going to summarize Superman the Secret Years, uh, and specifically Superman the Secret Years, number 3. We're going to be talking about Tales of the Teen Titans, number 52, and Vigilante, number 16. I'll, of course, tell you what's going on in these series, or all the big of events that have happened in these series. Uh, up to this point. Uh, so let's get into the first issue, Justice League of America number 237, released January 3rd, 1985, like they all have been, uh, cover date April 1985. Now, debuts uh, are interesting. Just like last time, we've got debuts on the podcast, not necessarily debuts of these characters. So, first of all, Justice League of America. We all know what this is. It's the the super team we all know from the, 2000, the early 2000s. Uh, animated series, I guess I shouldn't say we all, there's probably some younger viewers, uh, or people that didn't watch the show that don't know, but, you know, it's typically got the Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, Aquaman, Martian Manhunter sometimes, the Hawk people, all that kind of stuff, um, but this is actually very interesting, it's the, it's the beginning of, or the almost beginning, we're about four-ish issues, four or five issues into what is known as the Detroit era, um, and that is... So, uh, the Justice League of America has been going for, you know, over 230 issues. When uh, Batman left, I uh, can't remember why, but Batman left uh, the team, uh, and Superman, Wonder Woman, and The Flash, they all got sent to Earth 2. But nobody knows that. Nobody knows that they got sent to Earth 2. So, the team is kind of falling apart. So, in uh, Justice League of America Annual Number 2... Aquaman, you know, calls a meeting of the UN because at this point in time, the Justice League of America has a, a UN charter uh, and says that he's disbanding the Justice League. Basically, a few panels later, he decides to reform it, but only with full time active members, because at this point in time, you know, Superman, Flash, Wonder Woman, Batwoman, Batman, uh, all these people, they had other duties. Green Lantern, of course, had his duties in space, all this kind of stuff. So they were really part time. And only came together when necessary. But Aquaman thinks that if this team is going to be around, people need to be dedicated to it. And so he does, and he gets uh, himself, Martian Manhunter, who had who had just recently been away from the team, uh, kind of ruling over Mars, uh, or it's known as Mars 2, 
Uh, and then uh, a, I'll just say a, a, a Mars fleet came to Earth and there was an Earth-Mars war that lasted a couple weeks and it destroyed the satellite that we all know of, you know, for the Justice League satellite. It got destroyed. So, Aquaman, Martian Manhunter, the elongated man who was already on the Justice League, uh, he joined up with the new one uh, full-time. Sue Dibney, his wife, is there. She's not really a full member of the team, but she's always around. Um, Zatanna, who is the daughter of our, our good friend and uh, known Buckwild story-haver, Zatara, because uh, her name is Zatanna Zatara. Uh, and three, four, four-ish new people... Um, Vixen, Gypsy, Steel, and Vibe. So Vixen was introduced in Action Comics like, I think, four, three or four years before this. Gypsy is brand new in uh, Justice League of America Annual Number 2. She can turn invisible and this kind of stuff. She's 14 years old. She's very young. Steel, who is uh, who was introduced, I think, in, in Justice League Annual Number 2, possibly. Uh, if I remember correctly, sorry, I should be more sure about that. Uh, and Vibe, who uh, and Steel is, I should say, Steel is the uh, grandson of Commander Steel, who uh, was a, a superhero way back when. Uh, Steel has he's had experiments done on him uh, to like give him you know metal bones and kind of a, an underlaying of metal in his skin. He's like Superman light, I guess I would call him. He's a strong man. He's very strong. He has you know all these kinds of visions he can telescopic lens he can infrared he's got all this he's like a robot android kind of but he's still a person i guess is the best way to describe him and then we have vibe who if you've seen the flash tv show uh paco ramon uh, although i don't know i can't remember if his name is paco on the tv show i don't think so cisco is his name on the tv show that's right so paco ramon is his comic book name uh he has the ability to send out vibrations um and they're all new to the podcast in this issue. But we also have Superman of Earth-1, Wonder Woman of Earth-1, The Flash, Barry Allen, uh, all those three who, you know, we think we've met, but really we've met the Earth-2 Superman. We haven't met Wonder Woman yet. And Flash, Barry Allen, we won't meet uh, his original debut for a very long time. Whew. All right. Oh, man. Okay. Sorry. That was a lot. That was a lot of characters. Um, I hope it wasn't too confusing. Uh, it felt somewhat coherent when I was saying it, but uh, let's get into the actual issue, but um, not mechanics, the people that worked on the issue. So we've got Jerry Conway is the writer, Chuck Patton is the penciler, uh, Mike McClan is the inker, Ben Oda is the letterer, and Eugene D'Angelo is the colorist. Now we can finally get into the issue. So uh, on the cover is... A man with a guitar, so that's pretty cool. Very 80s, um, and a, a cape, and he is playing the guitar, and out is coming this green energy, and it's forming a snake man that is like it's choking Superman with its tail. It's it's holding on to the Flash and, and choking it him as well with its tail, and it's holding uh, Wonder Woman by uh, her arms. It also has arms. It's like a snake man thing. Uh, that's the cover, and it says they are back, but things just aren't going as planned. So, Superman, Wonder Woman, and the Flash have returned from Earth Two, where they helped this family deal with a, a thing. It's not important. So, but they're they're back from Earth Two, so that's great. We then cut to Detroit, the hidden headquarters of the the New Justice League. They are that's why they're it's called the Detroit area. They're no longer on the satellite because it was destroyed in 
the Mars-Earth war. They're now in Detroit. Uh, and Steele's grandfather is letting them use this sort of super high-tech bunker, doomsday bunker that he created, because um, he is uh, a little bit out there um, in terms of, because, I mean, he experimented on his own grandson, so he's not a great guy. And uh, Aquaman is up late, and Vixen, who is wearing just the, one of the most 80s things I've ever seen. It's You've probably seen it if you've ever seen, like, 80s things. So it's like a, it's a crop top t-shirt and it's a sort of leotard with just straps like a bathing suit without the top but it has like straps and then leg warmers it's just very 80s um and she's talking to uh arthur and arthur is kind of telling her why he has trouble sleeping because his wife mira left him because he, uh, the, their son died, and he lost his throne in Atlantis, which is, like, the main thing that Aquaman does, is lose his throne and regain his throne. And it, she just felt like he didn't love her anymore. Um, so uh, Vixen and him have this conversation about, like, hey, you know, maybe this was a cry for help. Like, are you sure she's, like, she doesn't want you to, like, come after her or, like, reach out and say, hey, you know, I know we've gone through some tough times, but... Uh, I, I think that love is still there. But uh, Aquaman says that if he did that, it would be sort of hypocritical because the entire reason he started this version of the Justice League was so that people were 100% dedicated to being full-time members, not you know dealing with their own personal dramas outside of the League and stuff like that, which is kind of ironic because Vixen... In the in this scene, she has uh, a cast on because uh, and a sling because she got shot uh, going after the dictator of uh, the country that she's originally from in Africa. It's a fake country; it doesn't matter. Um, uh, because he uh, performed a coup and killed her father, who was the newly elected president of that country. This all happened. We get all these sort of introductions to these new characters in a four-part rebirth uh, storyline that happened literally just before this issue so uh this is actually a really great starting on point um well obviously four issues ago would have been better but this is still pretty good because everything's still new and i will say i know that a lot of people don't like the detroit era it, it's a very hit or miss with people but i think it's really good there's a lot of more interpersonal like conflict with the group because the one critique of the justice league and dc comics superheroes um uh, has always been is like they're too squeaky clean you know they're always smiling and everyone's having a good time but this is channeling a lot of the teen titans x-men sort of these people are working together in their team but they are also humans and they have conflict and i think it's pretty good uh so far i've only read six issues so um it could get it could get worse but there's another reason why aquaman has been staying up he has been uh, waiting for the return of Superman, Wonder Woman, Flash. They don't know where they went, and they're just wondering why um, they're gone. And also, they don't know that the Justice League has disbanded and a new one has formed because they've been gone. They've been gone for several weeks, uh, for three weeks. He's been waiting for the sensor on the satellite to ring, like the proximity center sensor, so that it's like, oh, they're back. They've gone to the satellite, and they'll discover that the satellite is broken. And as he says that, we get a ping. Uh, the proximity sensor for the satellite has been uh, activated. We then cut to space 
Oh, and then we get the we get the uh, title for this issue, and it's called "It's Lest All Acquaintance Be Forgot" because it's the New Year. It's January third is when it's published. That's that's fun. That's a fun little reference to that song that I don't know uh, what it means. So we have uh, Superman, and he is pulling Wonder Woman's invisible jet uh, with her in the Flash inside up to into space because I I doubt it can travel in space. It's a jet. It's not a spaceship. And they discover that the satellite is busted. And Superman and Wonder Woman and Flash, they're all confused about why it is broken. Because from their point of view, they've only been gone a few hours. Uh, They say specifically, they adjourned a regular monthly meeting of the Justice League. And then the three of them and Supergirl got transported to Earth 2 to help this family out with the the problem. And then they're back and, and suddenly... The satellite's destroyed and no one's there. That's weird. So there's been some time slippage, I guess, or loss. Uh, So they are going to try to find out who did it or what happened. And as they are, you know, talking about we got to find out who did this, a satellite, a different satellite, not the Justice League satellite, looks like a spy satellite, kind of floats, floats by. And Superman's like, that That looks suspicious. Let's, you know, rope it with the Larry. Oh, and I should say, because it caught me off guard for a second, or I thought it was funny. Superman is wearing a sort of choker necklace. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that Superman was making like a fashion statement back in the 80s. But I, I realized uh, later that it is probably the way he communicates with Wonder Woman and Flash inside the uh, invisible jet. Because sound doesn't travel in space, so he it will just use the vibrations of his his neck. Um, so that's it's still it's still quite the fashion statement, though. Uh, and you know what? I think he rocks it. I think he pulls it off. Um, so Superman lassos this satellite, and it immediately explodes. Um, but Superman, as it's exploding, uh, he grabs all the pieces and puts it back together. And he says, I'll have this satellite reconstructed before you can say, fastest man alive. And then it cuts to the flash and he says, I resent that because, you know, it's always a competition about who is the fastest. So uh, Wonder Woman uses her, you know, uh, experience working in Air Force intelligence, which is her job as her civilian identity of Diana Prince, uh, that this is a uh, Kalovich Design Group satellite, um, which is located, if you couldn't guess, in the uh, Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, otherwise known as the USSR, because it is the 80s and the Cold War is very much going on. So we then cut back to Detroit and an alarm is uh, signaling uh, in the Detroit headquarters. And this is where we see all of the members of the uh, new Justice League for the first time in this issue. We see Elongated Man, we see Sue Dibney, we see Zatanna, we see... Oh, Gypsy must be there. I didn't know Gypsy was there. Uh, Gypsy, Martian Manhunter, uh, uh, Hank Haywood. Hank Haywood? Yes, Hank Haywood III. Uh, Steel. Um, We see Vibe, Paco Ramon. And we see Dale Gunn, who is... Um, Hank Haywood III's uh, sort of father figure. He was uh, he was his dad's best friend uh, when they were in uh, Vietnam together. His dad died, and so now Dale Gunn sort of works for his grandfather, but also is sort of a father figure to Hank Haywood III. 
So they're all rushing to uh, the command or like the the center room, the command center, to be like, what's going on with this alarm? And they get there and Aquaman's sitting there. And I should say, Aquaman's been acting like a real jerk uh, since becoming in charge of uh, the Justice League Detroit. Uh, and uh, they chalk it up to him being a, a former, you know, monarch who has lost his throne. And so he's used to everyone just doing whatever he says because he was king. But now he's not a king. He's a leader of a group of equals. Uh, and he says, 14 seconds after I sounded the alarm, you're improving. And they're mad because it is the middle of the night. Uh, everyone was sleeping, except for Zatanna. She was in a deep meditation trance. And they're like, if this is a test, I'm going to beat you black and blue. Um, but uh, it's not a test. It's it's a real thing. They talk about the proximity alarm on the Justice League satellite. And they... Th- think it's the arrival of superman wonder woman and the flash from wherever they were at were they then talk about shortly after that there being an explosion and then they headed eastward across the earth in high orbit straight towards the soviet union um hank haywood the third i don't know why i'm saying his full name i'll just call him hank from now on um hank says uh maybe his dad his granddad can find out what's going on he's got connections in the cia because he's like this big industrialist um, who has his fingers in a lot of different pies. Uh, and the rest are going to go to USSR to find out what's going on. We then cut to Star City, USSR, which made me double take because I was like, wait, Star City? That's like a DC Comics city in the United States. It's where you know Green Arrow operates until later when he operates in Seattle. Uh, but I looked it up and it is a legitimate place. It's, uh, located in the sort of Western part of Russia. Uh, and it is where they launched all their, uh, space stuff from like Sputnik and all these sorts of things. It's, it's basically like their Cape Canaveral, uh, and stuff like that. Uh, it's a real place, and I think that's really cool. All real life references to real places in comic books, and you can learn a little bit. Uh, so we see these operations uh, of this Star City uh, USSR, and they are getting proximity alarms as well. There's something coming in, coming very fast towards them, and so they shoot off rockets, missiles, I should say, three missiles at them. And uh, unfortunately, the um, the three superheroes, Flash, Wonder Woman, and Superman, they don't want to have to like act hostile but it's either that or get shot out of the side so they got to fight fire with fire they take out uh two of the missiles wonder woman does by lassoing one into another and then the third flash jumps on and vibrates his hand through the guidance system and basically makes it shoot straight into the ground exploding the uh russian sorry ussr uh air force is then called in uh, there's three, they look like, like kind of similar to F-15s or F-16s, something like that. And they come out, actually, I think it's four, four of them. Uh, they come out, they come to attack and, uh, Superman flies right by him and he says some things in Russian because isn't he just perfect? He knows all the languages. Uh, they, they attempt to shoot him out of the sky, but they accidentally shoot one of their comrades who then plummets to earth and, uh, Superman rushes to 
save the pilot, and uh, Wonder Woman and the Flash land the invisible jet uh, on the ground, and they are immediately surrounded, all three of them, by Russian soldiers. Uh, they try to say, hey, you know, we're, we're not here to harm you, we just need to talk to whoever's in charge. And uh, at first nothing happens, but then a man, the man we saw on the cover comes out he's wearing all black with a sort of it's like an all black leotard not leotard what's the one with like all like with legs and arms is that a leotard we'll call it that uh with like a white sort of v he looks like he's wearing a very skin tight tuxedo and he has a purple cape and of course his kitar also he has hair that is interesting it's sort of it's sort of it's like combed it's like flat it's like flat on top but then it wings up on the side i don't know who it reminds me of but it looks like it basically looks like evil hair so you got to you got to think that maybe this guy is not great so they see this guy with the kitar and the flash is like that is there's something so familiar about this dude with the kitar or at least the kitar itself and this man he begins playing the kitar um and these sort of creatures come out, this snake man, there's like a devil man, and there's like a skeleton dude. They're all these green sort of legless things. And they quickly, very, very quickly, uh, knock out all of the uh, heroes and put them in a sort of container. And uh, a man comes out and says, Bravo, Maestro Magnificent. Tchaikovsky himself would approve. And the guy says, oh, you know, it's fine. It's the instrument did most of the work. It, the instrument's where the magic is, not the performer. Um, which is such a... Come on, dude. I couldn't play a guitar well. Gotta, you know, have some pride in your work. Uh, and this guy, <clears throat> who we find out is named General Anton Gorky, says, uh, Nonetheless, when those cowards in the Kremlin learn that we have accomplished here, what we have accomplished here today, they will know how wrong they were to discharge General Anton Gorky from command of the Red Army. Um, <clears throat> so, clearly something's going to go, you know, go bad for Superman, Flash, and Wonder Woman. But we cut to uh, Hank, uh, Dale Gunn, and Elongated Man, who I should say about Elongated Man, it's so it's so funny every time he's on screen because if you don't know who Elongated Man is, he's uh, Ralph Dibney. He's a former sleuth uh, who drinks this special concoction. Um, I think it's called Gin Gold, if I remember correctly. Uh, that gives him these sort of like stretchy, basically Mr. Fantastic powers. Um, but the thing is, he, he looks like a normal person, except when he's stretching. And he's always stretching. He, running down the hall for that uh, alarm, his neck was like three feet long. And he's sitting in this uh, plane that they're flying in. And his neck is just like all over the place. And his arm is all stretched out. And like, I get it. If I had stretching powers, I'd be stretching constantly. I would be sitting on the couch and be like, oh, man, I really want something from the fridge. And I would just be like, stretch my arm out, you know? Uh, so I get it. It's just always funny seeing him on panel. He's He never just looks like a regular guy, which is very funny. Uh, so they're flying to Haywood Industries to talk to Hank's father, not father, grandfather, Hank Haywood I. Um, and uh, Hank uh, is talking to a elongated man about 
how he feels wearing a costume. Because um, Hank has been having, he's got, Hank has anger issues. Um, and he also is a very new superhero. The reason that they're allowed to use the bunker is because Hank's grandfather let them use it, but only if Hank could become a member of the Justice League. And so he's a very, very new superhero. Uh, and so he kind of feels a little bit silly wearing his costume. His costume looks pretty cool. It's it's red, white, and blue, and it's got a full cowl. Uh, no cape or anything, but it's, it's pretty cool design. But he feels silly wearing it at times. And uh, he talks to Ralph, and Ralph says, well, I've never really had a secret identity. Uh, Ralph Dibney, everyone has always known that Ralph Dibney is the elongated man with the stupid costume and all, but he loves the attention. He used to work, he used to work at a circus. He's uh, he's a showboat. He likes that. And Hank says, yeah, I mean, there are times when like, I feel great showing off cause he, you know, he can lift, you know, uh, I think almost three tons and, or maybe almost two tons. And he's got all these like basically bulletproof and it's very, it's very, he feels great. But then also he feels like, what do people really think? about him you know are they are they laughing when he's not looking and that's when he gets angry and uh that's a very that's a very important part of hank's personalities his his anger uh issues so they land in uh at haywood industries which uh hank haywood the first has this uh, full fully like biome inside of his factory so you can tell he's got money you know uh so they land, and they talk to him and say, you know, they introduce Ralph. This is Ralph, and he's the elongated man, stuff like that. But the first thing that Hank Haywood the first says to Ralph is, oh, the elongated man, you were once a thief, weren't you? And Ralph is like, no, suspected only. I was cleared without any doubt. And uh, we'll just call him Grandpa Haywood. Grandpa Haywood, because Hank Haywood the first is just such a mouthful. Grandpa Haywood says... Well, where there's smoke, there's fire, Mr. Dibney. I'm not sure I approve of your association with my son. <laughs> Excuse me, grandson. And Ralph says, well, it's funny. I don't remember asking for your approval. And, you know, Hank's like, Grand granddad, can you just, like, chill, please, for once in your life? And then, you know, Grandpa Haywood goes on this whole sort of screed about, like, how, you know, he didn't know that this Justice League was going to be like this when he, you know, gave them use of the bunker and made Hank join because the Vixen, not the Vixen, Vixen is, was uh, wanted by the police for breaking into the Detroit jail to talk to interrogate some terrorists who were working for her uncle, the dictator of that country that killed her um, father. And then she went and attacked her uncle uh, in New York uh, in the... Uh, embassy of his country and the police wanted her. they say hey hand over vixen and aquaman said no she's a member of the justice league she's coming with us so you know kind of ignoring what the police what the authorities of the country that you're working in uh and then there's gypsy she's a thief um she, no one knows who she is uh they just they just call her gypsy um he then says something really racist about the Romani people. Uh, we then have Vibe, uh, Paco Ramon, who was who used to be the leader of a street gang called Los Lobos um, on Cameron Street in Detroit. 
and so Hank Haywood, the first Grandpa Haywood, is like, well, I don't think, you know what, I think we're not, you know, we're just going to turn over Vixen, we're going to keep Hank's name out of it, and then we'll find you a new team to get on Hank, one better, you know, with a better reputation. And um, Hank says, you know what, that all sounds great, except for one thing, it's not going to happen. And, and Grandpa Haywood's like, well, if you have a different plan, like, I, I'd be glad to hear it. And Hank's like, no, you're going to leave my friends alone, and you're going to stay out of their lives, and you're going to stay out of mine. And I, we came to you for help, but that was clearly a mistake. And Grandpa Haywood's like, well, hey, you're just upset. Just, you know, I understand, but, like, you know, just you got you to gotta see what I'm trying to tell you. And he puts his hand on Hank's shoulder, and Hank grabs his grandpa's arm and basically, like, puts him over his head and throws him through the window. Luckily, elongated man stretches and catches him. And Hank says, I held, I've held this in a long time, old man, but now I'm warning you. Stay out of my life. You hear me? Stay out of my life. And Hank storms off like he often does. And Dale Gunn says, hey, you better go after the kid, Ralph. Um, I'll see if I can patch things up with the old man. And he asks, Ralph, are you all right? And... Ralph says, yeah, I'm fine, but like, but I'm just like a little bit woozy from catching that old man. That guy weighs like a ton, and that's weird. We then cut back to Moscow, or I guess to USSR, but specifically to Moscow, to the KGB headquarters. And uh, General Gorky is getting a dressing down from the leader of the KGB, um, who I believe is named like Borsky or something. Let me find out real quick. Uh, yes, Comrade Borsky uh, is his name because that's what you call everybody in uh, Mother Russia during the USSR time. So basically he says, General or Comrade Borsky, the leader of the KGB, says, you have really done it this time, General Gorky. You've just, this is a huge blunder. You can't kidnap American superheroes. We are in a very tense situation with America right now. So you're going to turn them over to the KGB at once, uh, and they will do the right thing with them. And uh, General Gorky's like, "Oh, you com you demand this, do you, comrade? Um, you're not in a commission. You're not in the position to demand anything of me. They will remain at my estate until certain arrangements are consummated." And uh, Comrade Borsky's like, "Arrangements of what nature?" And General Gorky says the Red Army will be turned over to my personal command and I will receive the chairmanship of the party secretariat, which basically means he's in charge of the USSR, if you don't understand how the USSR worked. And, you know, General or Comrade Borsky is very angry about this, saying it's blackmail and treachery, and he clicks the button under his desk for security. Uh, they bust in, but uh, Gorky has his maestro uh, kind of deal with them, and they do. And... Uh, then they leave the KGB headquarters, and you know they they drive away. And it's funny because uh, General Gorky has this line. He says, um, "Pity, I never liked Comrade Borsky, but those guards were promising, quite promising." Ah, well, Maestro, as they say, you cannot make borscht without chopping beets, and it's true because borscht is made of beets. It's like um, it's like the USSR omelet, you know, without breaking a few eggs. 
We then cut to 80 kilometers northwest of Moscow to the winter state of General Anton Gorky. Uh, Superman and Flash and Wonder Woman are talking about uh, what they're feeling. They can feel their feet, their arms, but they can't move. It's like a weird form of polarisis. Polarisis. Paralysis. Oh, wow. Paralysis. Sorry. And they're kind of like, what's happened to us? I don't really know what's going on. I, I feel fuzzy. My thoughts... And these two men uh, come up and they said, you have heard the music of death. Um, Living death, those who hear it lose their will or are destroyed. The perfect tool for a madman like General Gorky. And then one of the men is sort of muttering to himself. And he's like, my fault, all my fault. And uh, Flash recognizes him and says, Allegro. That's why I recognize that synthesizer, that keytar. It's the same device that you used against the League months ago. And I say months ago, but in reality, Allegro or Anton Allegro hasn't been seen since March of 1979 uh, in Justice League of America number 164. So, like, that is a grip of time. Uh, I bet, you know, longtime readers of the comics were like, whoa, this guy, I thought, like, he died or whatever. But no, he's alive. Um, and Allegro just keeps, you know, mentioning my fault, my fault. And this other man says, he cannot hear you, my friends. He is deaf, which I believe happened in that issue uh, from, yes, yes, uh, an accidental strike by Green Lantern, not Green Lantern, Green Arrow, uh, deafened him and uh, he was captured and sent to an asylum. Uh, he escaped that asylum and uh, defected to the USSR, where he fell into Gorky's hands and put him into uh, another asylum, one far more grim than uh, that which he knew in America. So, and obviously made him like build the synthesizer for his new maestro. And this is when... Uh, Oh, sorry, this other guy, he says, we're all mad here. You see, mad because we oppose a mad system. Mad because we oppose madmen like Gorky, which is uh, a fun little bit of uh, anti-USSR sort of messaging inside this comic, which, like, fair enough, the USSR wasn't great. Uh, Gorky then busts in and says, a fair definition of insanity, comrade Dmitry Ivanovich, to stand against that which is inevitable, that which cannot be opposed. Gorky then explains to Superman, Flash, and Wonder Woman that nobody knows about this place uh, where they're being held and that he has made demands of his superiors in Moscow in regards to these three that have been uh, denied. And so he has to make an example. He has to prove that he's not bluffing. And that means that he has to execute one of these three. And that's where the issue ends. Bum, bum, bum. Which one will it be? Like, well, what? it's obvious to me which one would be the easiest to kill. Flash. He's just a guy that can move really fast. Like, sure, he could, like, probably vibrate. But, I mean, it seems like he can't really move, so it'd be pretty easy to kill him. Whereas, like, Wonder Woman and Superman, they're both sort of somewhat indestructible. Uh, I think Wonder Woman less so, but uh, Superman definitely is. And so that's the end of that issue. And uh, I, we'll, we'll have to wait probably several episodes to find out what happens. Oh, man. Could you imagine? This is what it's like. This is what it's like to read comics, you know, chronologically. You just got to wait. Uh, so that's that one. I think it's pretty good, um, especially with the bill, like, knowing all these things about the Justice League Detroit that that I have read in the 
sort of five issues leading up to this one, which unfortunately happened before Crisis on Infinite Earths number one, but hopefully I summarized the parts uh, well enough to, to make this issue understandable to everyone. Uh, but let's talk about uh, Superman the Secret Years and specifically Superman the Secret Years number three. So this series is a four-part miniseries. That's why we're really only summarizing it and we're not going beat by beat, issue by issue, because there's only four issues and this is the third one, so the next one comes out uh, in a month from this issue and then the series is done. But basically the series explains how Superman transitioned from being Superboy to being Superman. And what it does is it goes back to stories that have been told previously. Like, for example, uh, Superman the Secret Years number three goes back to uh, Superman number 129 and sort of fleshes out the story that was in that one, or at least one of the stories that was in that one. I don't know if that one had multiple stories in it. Yes, looks like it did. It had three stories in it, and one is called The Girl in Superman's Past, and that is what uh, the Superman the Secret Years is fleshing out. Basically, it's a story about how Superman is in love with this girl who's a mermaid, and um, Pete Ross, who's a friend from Smallville, comes to uh, where Superman is going to college at the time, and they talk about her. It's not really important. It's It's, I think, just a, you know... For people who were like, hey, whatever happened to that Superman? Like, that mermaid that Superman was in love with or whatever. But a lot of the stories from that time, obviously, were uh, kind of throwaway because I think this is in the Silver Era where they make a cover and then they have to make the story uh, about what's on the cover. So, like, this, the cover for Superman number 129 is The Ghost of Lois Lane. It's like a Lois Lane ghost, and it's all it's all quite silly. Uh, but so that's why we're not talking about it. But basically, it just fleshes out past stories of Superman uh, when he was Superboy, quote unquote, uh, which will be retconned out of existence uh, basically after Crisis on Infinite Earths. So if I'm if I'm not if I'm not incorrect, um, so that's why we're not talking about that more in depth. But I mean, it's uh, we'll talk about the issue. It's uh, written by Bob. Rosakis, penciled by uh, Kurt Swan, inked by Kurt Schaffenberger, lettered by John Costanza, and colored by Thomas J. Ziuko. Uh, so that's that one. Uh, sorry if, if everyone was really excited about uh, Superman's Mermaid Girlfriend, but it's not super important. Uh, we then go to uh, Tales of the New Teen Titans, number 52. Um, this is actually also weirdly a very good jumping on point for, uh, this series as well. This is, uh, the second issue, I think the second, or only a few issues after the Judas contract, uh, which is where, um, I, uh, I don't know if I want to spoil, uh, you know what, I'm going to put, I'm going to put a little spoiler warning right here. Spoiler warning for about the next, I'll try to keep it to... Uh, a minute. Uh, let me just, I'm going to set a timer and explain Judas Contract in a minute. Uh, okay. Uh, so, spoiler warning right now. If you don't want to hear about what the Judas Contract is, uh, skip ahead one minute. Okay. So, the Judas Contract is the Titans get a new member, Terra. She can control Earth and stuff, and it's very cool, and Beast Boy loves her, and all that kind of stuff, and she's great. They are then battling against Deathstroke, the Terminator, which he's only called the Terminator in here. I don't know if he doesn't get the name Deathstroke until later. 
But they're battling against him, and it turns out that Tara has been sort of a mole, a... Uh, she's been secretly working and I'm in, in a relationship with Deathstroke and it's really, really gross because she is a minor and he is a, like, adult man, like, very adult man, I think probably in his, like, 40s or 50s. It's gross. It's nasty. Uh, it's it's a real, real blemish on the what is actually a pretty good story. And it's, uh, it's all about that. Uh, Tara, you know, revealing that she has been working with... Um, Deathstroke this entire time, and the the Titans having to deal with th- them and all that kind of stuff, and that was a, a kind of okay explanation of the Judas contract, all in about fifty eight minute seconds. Whew. All right, people who skipped ahead for spoilers, you're safe now. I'm not going to talk about it, but we're only a few issues after that. Donna Troy has gotten married uh, to Terry Long, I think his name is, and so she's off on her honeymoon, so she's not in these issues. Um, and this this issue is actually a second part of a storyline all about Jericho, who is the son of Deathstroke, uh, Wade Wilson, and his wife, Adeline Wilson, who is also a spy. And the first part deals with um, Adeline Wilson sort of uh, being a bounty being put on her head uh, by this fake Middle Eastern country. Um for stealing their secrets about another fake Middle Eastern country. And Cheshire, who you'll know if you're a fan of uh, the Young Justice cartoon, in that she plays uh, the sister to um, Artemis. Uh, in that one, she wears a cool like Cheshire cat mask. She doesn't wear that here. It's kind of sad. That I think that's actually a pretty sick look. Um, in this one, she just wears a sort of uh, green costume with like really long socks and uh she has one sleeve but on the other side she has no sleeve it's 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 a fine look it's very 80s uh but in the first issue she captures jericho's uh mom and beats up jericho and it's all like the team is sort of suspicious of jericho especially beast boy who is still reeling from tara being a traitor because he really really liked her and uh, he doesn't trust Jericho because he is Deathstroke, the Terminator's son. So there's a, there's some conflict there. And uh, basically, uh, Cheshire comes in and, and beats up Adeline Wilson and then also beats up Jericho. And then Jericho uh, wakes up and Beast Boy has come to bring him in because the authorities want to talk to him in regards to his mother. Uh, and Beast Boy doesn't speak sign language, and Jericho is mute, uh, which is very cool. He's, he's um, a differently abled superhero. Not the first. The first is probably uh, Dr. Midnight uh, from uh, way back in the Golden Age. Also, there's this other differently abled uh, superhero called Daredevil, not the Daredevil you're thinking of, who is also a mute Uh from the from 1941, but uh, he's not in DC Comics, so we don't really have to talk about him. Uh, but it's cool. Uh, so Jericho, you know, uses sign language to communicate, but Beast Boy doesn't know it. So he says, you know, don't try to explain because I don't know what you're saying. And uh, they get into a fight, and Jericho knocks out Beast Boy and uh, escapes. Uh, that's where. That, that's where the issue before this one leads leaves off, and then we're, we're now 
into uh, Tales of the Teen Titans number 52. Um, let's talk. I just explained a bunch about the Teen Titans and all that stuff, but we have never met the Teen Titans before on this podcast, so I don't know why I did that. Sorry, I kind of jumped the gun. Um, let's do the due diligence on this issue and the team. So, released January 3rd, 1985, cover date April 1985, Tales of the Teen Titans number 52. Uh, so we have a ton of debuts on this podcast, and uh, also, uh, well, no, no actual debuts straight up of anybody. Uh, so we have the Teen Titans, which are a group of uh, younger superheroes, some former sidekicks like Robin, who have, who is now turned into Nightwing. He changes into Nightwing, I think, during the events of Judas Contract. Uh, so that's another spoiler, sorry. Um, not really. Uh, we have Beast Boy, who, uh, if you know anything from the uh, early aughts, mid-aughts Teen Titans show, which is a, a great show, or Teen Titans Go, uh, or Young Justice. Uh, he sh- changes into animals. He's got green skin. Uh, he used to be a member of the Doom Patrol. We have Cyborg, who is, again, if you know any uh, if, uh, Teen Titans, Teen Titans Go, Young Justice, he is a... a a, a black man who is part robot uh, and part human after an accident. Uh, Starfire, same thing from all those shows. Well, I guess she wasn't in Young Justice, was she? Uh, so just the two Teen Titans shows. Uh, she's an alien from... Oh, well, now I'm blanking. Uh, I've blanked. She's an alien. A refugee because she has been banished from her planet a lot of the times because of her sister or a war, or all this kind of stuff. Uh, we have Lilith, who uh, is kind of like very, I, I would say, superhero light. She doesn't really have a costume. She has telepathy and precognition. Um, she is only temporarily here. She was off with uh, uh, Nark, or Gnark, uh, who is uh, who's known, as, known as Cave Boy. Um, he's an out-of-time caveman. Uh, he's dead. Uh and we have Cheshire, who I've explained. We have Jericho, who I've explained. And then we have Asriel, again, not the one you're thinking of, uh, who is uh, not, the, not uh, the person who takes over for Batman uh, during Nightfall, but instead is a winged alien sort of guy. Uh, so those are all the characters um, that are covered or debuting on the podcast in this issue. Uh, the uh, Oh, yeah, also, this is the... This is only a few issues after the end of the Marv Wolfman, George Perez, very famous run of Teen Titans that went for 50 issues. Uh, Now it is Marv Wolfman writing, uh, Richard F. Buckley penciling, Mike DiCarlo inking, John Costanza lettering, and Adrian Roy or Waugh, if he's uh, French at all, uh, as the colorist. Ugh. Okay, so let's now, sorry, oh man, that one was all over the place. Uh, let's now get into the actual issue. Uh, the cover is pretty good. We have a, uh, looks like a wall of offense with posters of all of the Teen Titans faces. We have Starfire, um, Cyborg, Donna Troy, Beast Boy, Jericho, Raven, who's not in this issue because she's off dealing with some malfunction in her powers, Lilith and Nightwing, and then standing in front of them sort of having scratched the wall up, even scratching up the title of the issue, is Cheshire with her green short skirt 
costume with really like thigh high green tights, um, very 80s sort of pirate boots, uh, green headband. She's got black hair, very 80s hair. Um, she's cool. I mean, she looks good. She looks good. Um, and this this issue is called Jericho's Story. Uh, so let's get into it. It begins in the Middle East uh, with the president of a fake country called Karak, uh, with a Q, uh, named uh, President Marlowe, which doesn't really sound like a Middle Eastern name, now does it? Uh, but that's not important because it's a fake Middle Eastern country. And he is standing in front of uh, Adeline Wilson, uh, Jericho's mother. She's tied up to a chair, and he's saying, give me the information and spare yourself the pain. You saw me extract information from other people. You know it's a very, very painful process. So just just stop it. I, I want the information. Well, let's, you know. Just stop it. Just stop it and, and do what I ask. He's about to begin the torture when one of his men comes in and says, President Marlowe, uh, Krigor has arrived. And uh, Marlowe's like, oh, of course, yes, Krigor is here. Good, good. Uh, Krigor is a bald man uh, with a mustache, a very long sort of uh, handlebar, almost almost horseshoe mustache. He's very... He's very dapper. He's wearing a, a dark uh, black suit with like sort of purple accents. It's quite nice. Uh, and he is talking about a shipment of guns and weapons that he sold to President Marlowe that were confiscated in New York. And uh, this happened in the previous issue of this run, or of this title, where uh, in issue 51 of Tales of the Teen Titans, we see the Teen Titans are, are battling gun runners in New York, and those are the guns that we're talking about. Marlowe would like the guns replaced, but Krigor says, well, if you had not already signed for them and they weren't already in your possession, then I would replace them. But you signed for them, and then after that you lost them. So if you want weapons, you're going to have to pay for them again in gold. And... Well, Marlo's like, well, I don't really, really can't do that, like financially. You know, my country only has so much money to purchase weapons to, you know, illegally invade other countries. Uh, so he says, well, does it have to be in gold? And Krieger says, well, no, of course not. Uh, you could do art. And this entire time, they've been in this sort of gold-colored room. Like, imagine, like, if you've ever seen pictures of of Trump's apartment in Trump Tower in New York. Uh, it looks like that. It's all gold, and the walls are covered in art. And Krieger says, "Ah, you're long. You're you're. I've long fancied your art collection, uh, so that'll do quite nicely." And Marlo's like, "Well, these are my prized possessions." And Krieger's like, "Well, more more prized than the power that you're looking for. You stole these from your neighbors by invading them. Like, you need weapons to do that. So I don't. I mean." You gotta make a choice. And so Marlo agrees, but says, hey, don't, you know. In his mind, he's like, well, don't get too comfortable with these paintings. I'm gonna get them back somehow. Uh, we then cut to New York City. Uh, Jericho, at the end of last issue, had knocked on a uh, door in, in New York City, and a woman, uh, a black woman with an afro, opened the door, and we are now inside of her apartment. And she says, she knows Joe, she's very familiar with him, uh, or Jericho, and his, his real name is Joseph uh, Wilson. And they, so everyone calls him Joe all the time, or Joey, or Joseph. 
and you know they're comfortable with like they know each other and so they laid down or Jericho lays down what happens because he is he signs it to her and she can understand him because they've known each other for many years and so they uh they are both gonna go to Karak and uh get Adeline back they're gonna do a, a two-person buddy comedy action comedy uh in Karak called uh, Jericho and Amber head to the Middle East. I don't know. Um, we then cut back to, uh, or cut to the first time, to Titan's Tower, and it is just the iconic T, you know, capital T in the East River. It's sick. It's awesome. Uh, I'm reading for pleasure right now. I'm le- reading the second New 52. Um, well, I'm reading all of the New 52, but I'm reading the, I'm at the point where I'm reading the second Teen Titans in the new 52 and they still don't have have the big t and it's like just give us the big t everyone wants the big t so and uh the titans are having a discussion about jericho uh and it just seems so fishy like he's not telling everything to them he's keeping secrets being the terminator's son they're very very suspicious of him and uh, they all agree that something weird is going on. Then they talk about Deathstroke, the Terminator. He is, he's in prison for, you know, crimes. And also he killed, oh, I can't say who he killed because of spoilers. But he killed someone. And uh, so he's going to be going on trial in a few days. And uh, Starfire is wondering, like, why hasn't he revealed their identities? Because as a part of the Judas contract, he learned all of their identities. Nightwing says, I don't know. I'm not sure why he's not. Uh, and I, I don't care if my identity is revealed. And, you know, that's true. Dick Grayson's identity gets revealed all the time. Uh, but he's worried about, by finding out Nightwing's identity, that he'll find out the Batman's identity, and that'll be bad. Um, uh, Beast Boy is being, you know, sort of uh, angry about everything. Uh, as usual, because he's very mad uh, at the at Deathstroke, maybe even more than the rest of the Teen Titans. Uh, so he's all he's like, "Oh, ooh, let me at him! I'll do some things." Uh, then Lilith comes in and she says that uh, she's found Joe. Him and a female companion took off uh, for the Middle East this morning on a private flight, and halfway there so over outside of u.s territory they changed their flight uh to where they were headed they're headed to specifically to karak uh so beast boy's like see he left he's got to be a traitor you know because he just can't trust him he's just he's been hurt one too many times so he's slow to trust Uh, and i mean the the titans agree like that's weird you know he's he's not telling us things he's going off on his on his own but i mean last issue beast boy did attack him without hearing his side of the what's what was going on so beast boy is just being a little bit irrational along with it uh the phone rings and cyborg answers it and it is someone from star labs uh star labs has found a spaceship frozen in alaska with uh, the pilot on board frozen in suspended animation. This is something that came up in the last issue as well. It's just sort of like as a B-plot that is that was building, uh, and this is uh, it building as well. So Cyborg has to bring his mom's uh, cryogenic experiment research to Star Labs for them to, you know, be, figure out how to get this guy out of, you know, suspended animation. So they all... They all agree, like, hey, we got to find out answers about 
Jericho, but it's not really our job to chase after him to the Middle East. Like he's a he's a pseudo member of this team, but he's not actually a member of this team. So they're all going to go to Star Labs with Cyborg, uh, and then after that, they're going to get food. It's very fun. These Teen Titans issues they do act a lot like teenagers, and so like one of the things is like, hey, I'm going to go to Star Labs, and then I'm going to like get pizza or whatever. Does anyone want to come with? And they're all like, yeah, for sure, for sure, no doubt, no doubt. Love some za. Uh, Lilith has a sort of uh, headache, a uh, premonition. She has uh, precognition abilities, and she thinks that whatever is waiting for them at Star Labs is going to change her life. <gasps> Whoa, that's intense. Uh, so they all, you know, they all head out. Uh, Cyborg and Beast Boy they travel by air because Cyborg can just like jump over the East River, and of course Beast Boy can fly by turning into a bird. But the rest, it's kind of funny. You never see this in like the TV show, any of the TV shows, but. Uh, Lilith and Starfire, even though Starfire can fly, uh, and, and Nightwing, they all ride on this sort of small floating platform that just kind of it must be attached to some sort of, like, it either drives itself or it's attached to some sort of cable, but it's just kind of slowly moving across the, the East River, just kind of a floating platform. It's pretty funny. Uh, and they're talking about, you know, uh, you know, uh, Garfield, Beast Boy is taking it pretty hard, this whole Terminator thing, uh, the trial coming up, you know, emotions are high. And it's like, yeah, you know, hopefully it'll it'll end up well, going well. So I guess we'll find out, you know, in the future. In the next, next time we come upon this uh, comic series. Uh, so we then cut to Karak in the Middle East, uh, where uh, Jericho and Amber, the woman that he uh, went to her apartment, they are there. And there's this part where she orders bourbon, which is like good, solid, great choice. And then also orders water for Jericho. And the way, like the bartender is like water. Like, why would you order water? Because it's delicious and it's hydrating. You know what? I'm going to take a drink of water right now because it's so good. This episode is sponsored by water. Um, so they're looking for, they say out loud that they're looking for the president, Marlowe, And they want to know where they can find him. Uh, at a nearby table, some men are talking. It's like, oh, yeah, that's the guy. That's the boy, the American boy that we're looking for. Uh, they then attack uh, Jericho and Amber. Uh, Jericho is is trained by Deathstroke, and his mom's no slouch either when it comes to fighting. So he handles himself pretty well, even without using his uh, powers, which if you know anything about Jericho, which you, I don't know if I've explained his powers, he's able to sort of control people's bodies after making contact with them. Basically, like takes over their 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 bodily functions. Like he move them around and make them talk and stuff like that. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Pretty cool power. Uh, so they're fighting. They're 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 holding their own until Cheshire shows up, uh, and she quickly trounces both of them again. Just because uh, she last last issue, I should say, this is the first time she's showing up in this issue. I keep forgetting they're blending together. Last issue, she fought uh, Jericho's mom. And then a little bit later, also Jericho, and he came home to, you know, just coming home and found his mom being attacked by Cheshire. Uh, and quickly, and Cheshire just beat him so easily because she knows that as long as she doesn't make eye contact with him, he can't use his powers. So she is uh, she has the upper hand there. Uh, so she quickly knocks him out and and gets Amber uh, with, with the men that are around. And they are taken uh, captive. Uh, presumably to President Marlowe's 
compound. We then cut back to New York uh, to Star Labs. So basically, the they have this pilot of this spaceship that was frozen in ice in Alaska uh, in this chamber that's keeping its, its temperature regulated, keeping him sort of under stasis uh, until they can safely bring him out. And Lilith is looking inside and she says, this is it. This is it, Garfield. Uh, this is what I was sensing before. It's inside this machine. And it looks like a person with wings. And Starfire makes the comment, like some people in the a planet in the Vagan system uh, where people are given wings. I don't know if that's a reference to Thanagar. I think that might be in the Vagan system, but I'm not well-versed on that uh, at this point in my life. So I'm going to guess it's a reference to Thanagar because that's the only planet I can think of uh, that has people with wings. But uh, if not, then there's two. And I don't think it's very important. Uh the doctor then says, hey, Starfire, I would love to experiment on you. Not in a sexual way, because Starfire, of course, is, is very skintily clad because she is solar-powered like Superman. And also, her hair is very big. It's as big as she is. She has a lot of hair. Uh, and she says, well, no, I don't really want to be experimented on uh, like to, to like understand my alien structure because I was experimented on to, give, to get my power, so I really don't want to do it again. And... Uh, and Nightwing says, yeah, once the government gets their hands on you, they won't probably let you go. So we're going to have to decline. And he said, the scientist at Star the Lab says, no problem. I was simply asking. I probably would agree where Washington is concerned. But as a scientist, I'd love to study her body. And then Garfield, being just a horny little guy, says, as a teenager, so would I. Oh, Garfield. Garfield. You teenage hormones going crazy. Uh, so, you know, they're all laughing at Garfield when suddenly, uh, the computers, uh, monitoring the stasis chamber, uh, are unable to regulate the temperature and everything inside is heating up too quickly. Uh, and it's, it's, it's rising at such a, like a quick rate that they're unable to cool it down. Uh, so it could, uh, explode. So the heroes get everybody out of the room, and Cybrick says, don't worry, I'll stay and regulate the temperature, or do my best, because he's really good with computers, being half robot. Um, he says that he doesn't really understand these computers, because they're too new, and he hasn't had time to read up on it yet, which is kind of funny. It's like, oh, he, he's good at computers, but only because he reads books, not because he is part robot. So that's kind of funny. Uh, Lilith has a premonition that if uh, Cyborg stays in here, in there, he'll die. It's going to explode and fuse his structure to the computers, killing him. Uh, so she convinces him to uh, get out. But before they can, it explodes. We then cut back to Karak, where uh, Marlo is back in the interrogation room with uh, Adeline. And, she sa- and he says, you know, we used to be friends, used to be on my side of things. Why can't you do that again? Just just give me the information and we can be done with this. Adeline says no, and he says, well, fine. If you're not going to uh, do this for me, maybe you'd like to meet uh, my visitor. And he says, I think you've probably met before, and it's Jericho. And he's blindfolded so that he can't use his powers. And... He, uh, President Marlowe says many years ago, the Jackal, a terrorist who, by the way, was working under my orders, cut your son's throat, depriving him of speech. So that's why he's been mute. He got a throat injury as a young child. 
kind of feels weird. I don't know why he would want to do that to just a kid of somebody who was technically working for him at the time. Seems weird. He's a weird guy. And basically says, if you don't give me the information that you stole from me, I'm going to you know, kill your son, with, in, not in so many words. And she says, fine, I'll do it. Because she's a, she's a good mother. She cares about her son and him being alive. Um, after giving the information up, she is locked in the interrogation room with Jericho and Amber. And their guards are put on the door saying, you know, if they try to escape, kill them. Um, so they may be safe, but, I mean, they're not actually safe. They come up with a plan to escape, uh, and it's a classic a classic ruse, or somewhat classic ruse, with a little bit of a Jericho twist. They say, guards, come quick, my son, he's disappeared. And they go into the room, and yeah, the guards have disappeared. Or, I mean, Jericho has disappeared. And they're looking around for him, and um, they you know, get the guards to come closer to Adeline, who's sitting in this chair, kind of not, not feeling well, because her son just disappeared, and she's scared. And then suddenly Jericho just pops out of her body, which... I don't know if that's how he's done it before. Obviously, I've only read a couple issues of him in it. But I always just thought that he still controlled his own body. But I guess he can put his body into other people's bodies. It's a lot of... I'm saying the word body a lot. And it's starting to not sound like a real world word. So I will uh, stop. And he, you know, he kind of jumps out of, of his mom's body. Which is... Freud would have a field day. Um, and uh, uh, knocks both the guards out quickly. You know, because he's... He's, he's good at what he does. He ties them up, and they're going to go and uh, escape by any means necessary. We then cut back to Star Labs, where the explosion has happened. And the room is bathed in, like, golden light. And out from the containment field, or, like, stasis chamber, comes this winged dude. He's got long, black, curly hair. He's got a headband. He's got some sort of... He looks like he's wearing, like, ancient... Roman garb of some kind or something. But uh, Lilith from the explosion has been sort of uh, Vitruvian man posed on the wall by the force. Uh, Cyborg's in a crumpled heap on the ground, but uh, Lilith is kind of frozen in place on the wall. And this guy, who, I mean, later, we don't find out his name, this issue, uh, unfortunately. I told you his name before even. You should have found out his name's Azrael. Um, he doesn't remember anything about who he is, but he knows that Lilith is beautiful, and he feels something when he looks into her eyes, and that feeling is love. Love at first sight. Uh, we then cut back to Karak, and uh, Jericho and Amber are running down a hallway uh, to try to find uh, an escape route. Uh, meanwhile, Krigor is having President Marlowe and his men pack up the art that they use to pay for the guns. And, you know, Krigor makes some more, some crack about how, you know, they're so lovely and they're immortal and they'll exist long after our bones have turned to ash, which maybe it's possible, but I mean, I mean, not guaranteed. Uh, Amber busts through the doors and, and she does call them a turkey. She says, you know, like, like, like jive turkey, but she just says turkey. Uh, and then she you know, tells them to freeze. She's got a gun. She's pointing at them. Um, she's going to pump them full of lead if they move. And 
she, you know, she's got him. She's got him under gun, you know, point. So she's got the upper hand. When uh, Cheshire's foot comes out from behind one of the crates, knocks the gun out of her hand, and they're having a, a fight. Uh, and this time, you know, Amber's not going to let Cheshire win, and she knocks her down to the ground. Uh, Cheshire picks up what looks like, I guess it's supposed to be a gun, but it's a very futuristic looking gun. And it looks like it does just shoot regular bullets, but um, Amber sort of uh, does a somersault or a flip, and she says, don't shoot the paintings, you mustn't destroy them, art is forever, you can't let it die. And then Joe, Joe, I keep calling him Joe because everyone in the comic calls him Joe, but I'm going to call him Jericho because that's his superhero name. Jericho jumps out of Amber's body. Uh, He was controlling her from the inside and knocks out Cheshire. Classic move. I mean, classic because you just did it a few pages ago, but just classic Jericho move. Um, And yeah, Jericho's angry uh, because of all the things that have been happening to him lately. You know, his friends don't, his friends are mad at him. His mom's been kidnapped. He's been beaten up many times. Um, And then he beats up all of President Marlowe's guards. Marlowe, meanwhile, like a boss in a bad action movie, is saying, just like, stop them, stop her, you know, stop all these people. And uh, Krigor is hiding behind some crates, and uh, Cheshire comes to from being, like, knocked down by Jericho, and Krigor says to her, kill kill them, girl, that's what Marlowe hired you for. And she, being smart, says, forget it, fat man. Cheshire knows a sinking ship when she sees one, and so she disappears into the shadows. Classic ninja style. Uh, Adeline, who I guess couldn't help at this point, I I guess she was too weak to do any fighting from all the torture, Uh, she comes into the room, and they're going to call Interpol and get Marlowe arrested for, you know, war crimes or crimes against humanity, torture, you know, kidnapping, stuff like that. Stuff that's illegal all over the world. But he says, no, you're not. No calls are being made because I've got a grenade, which I guess rhymed a little bit uh, accidentally for me. Uh, And he says, you know, shoot me. And I've already pulled the pin. So, you know, we're going to we're going to all die from the explosion from the grenade. So it's kind of a sort of a Mexican standoff, which I don't think that's right. I think it's just a regular standoff because there's not three people aiming guns at people so it's just a regular standoff i i stand corrected so it's like drop your gun drop your gun uh or else adeline is meanwhile is like say you know joe don't don't drop your gun he tortured me shoot him uh we've still got 10 seconds after he drops that grenade to get out of here and uh, we'll be safe it, it, we can we can make it out of here you just got to shoot him and uh, Marlo is scared, like he that Jericho might just do it, because you know who knows what he'll do after all this stuff building up. And so Marlo drops the grenade and runs out of the room. And Jericho dives for the grenade and throws it. And uh, there's a page of Jericho laying on the ground throwing the grenade. And the next panel is an explosion. And so you were like, oh my gosh, what's gonna happen? But we just have to turn the page. It's okay. It's not the end of the issue. What a cliffhanger that would be, huh? But um, no, it's just we just turn the page in. He's fine. He threw it out a window uh, and, and just kind of exploded parts. And uh, Adeline's mad at, at Jericho because he let Marlo go. And she's very mad at him. He's like, you could have shot him. Yeah, you could have killed him. Um, and we could have we could have gotten out of here, you know, scot-free. 
but you let him go. And, uh, you know, Amber explains, you know, like he did the right thing or what he thought was the right thing because if he had, you know, let this room be exploded, all this art would have been destroyed. And I'm, as we now know, when Amber was doing those flips and saying, no, you know, don't shoot the art, art is forever, you gotta, you can't let it die, that was Jericho saying that, not Amber, because he was in control of her body, so, you know, we kind of learn a little bit about Jericho, he has a really soft spot for art, and that's kind of just uh, the end of the issue, it just kind of ends like that, which is kind of weird, it kind of feels like maybe the uh, Star Labs part should have been the the last bit, that feels more like a cliffhanger, uh, than this one, which is just Adeline and Amber and Jericho standing around talking about art. So, But that's the end of the issue. That's the end of Tales of, of the Teen Titans number 53. Um, it's fine, I, th- I guess. I guess I didn't really critique the Justice League of America. I mean, I, really, I guess, I, you know what? I liked the Justice League of America issue. Uh, getting right at the beginning of, of the Detroit era, or almost the beginning of the Detroit era, was is it's interesting stuff. This is kind of disjointed, I guess, because like Jericho is having his own adventure, and while Jericho's fine, I, I much prefer my my good pals, the regular Teen Titans. Uh, so they kind of got pushed to B plot for this one because this is Jericho's story, which at this point. Jericho's been around for a few issues without much information about, you know, his whole deal because he's he's mute, so it's difficult for him to have exposition. Um, but uh, that's the issue, uh, and let's move on to uh, Vigilante number sixteen. Vigilante number sixteen was released as everything has been this episode, January third, nineteen eighty five, with a cover date of April nineteen eighty five. This issue was. Written by Paul Kupperberg, penciled by Alex Saviuk, inked by Rick Magyar, lettered by Philip Hugh Felix, and colored by Carl Gafford. Now, let's talk about Vigilante. If you have seen either Arrow, Season 5, I think, specifically, or, more likely, Peacemaker, uh which is a really good show I really like. Uh, This is a very different vigilante from Peacemaker. He is uh, smarter. He is more of an actual hero and not just a psychopath, who is, albeit, is very funny and and one of my favorite characters on the show of Peacemaker, with as many great characters as that show has. Uh, But he is Adrian Chase. At this time, he is the district attorney for New York City. And the character of... Adrian Chase was introduced as Adrian Chase in the New Teen Titans number 23 in September 1982, so about uh, three years before this. And then Vigilante was introduced in the New Teen Titans annual number two in August of 1983, and obviously these are cover dates, so um, think about it as, you know, four or five months before that. In time, and I should say, this is not the first vigilante. There's also another vigilante that looks like a cowboy, hangs out with Shining Knight, has been on the uh, Justice League Unlimited cartoon uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, but this is the vigilante that most people will know of now, I guess, because of the TV show and, well, because of the Peacemaker TV show and because of Arrow. Um, so, yeah, Adrian Chase is, he has throughout this issue, and I'm assuming a lot of issues, uh, this sort of noir 
you know, Philip Marlowe, Sam Spade sort of internal gumshoe sort of monologue. And I actually find it very, very enjoyable to read because I, I have been reading uh, a lot of those old detective stories, um, you know, The Big Sleep, Maltese Falcon, stuff like that. And I'm really, I really like it. But uh, let's talk about what Vigilante Adrian Chase has been up to, up to this uh, issue. This is Vigilante's first, and as of now, I think one of two volumes. This is Adrian Chase's only standalone comic. Uh, it ran for 52 issues, so that we have a lot of Vigilante to go through. So that's exciting, if you like Vigilante. Um, which, from this issue, I, I think it's fine. He's, he's, a good, he's a good hero. But throughout his time in these first 15 issues, he has been dealing with the fact that he is a district attorney, he's a man of the law, but at night he's breaking the law in order to, I guess, fight crime. So it's there's a lot of internal conflict. Obviously, I should say Vigilante became Vigilante, or Adrian, Adrian Chase became Vigilante because a crime boss killed his family, his wife and children. Uh, that happened in Teen Titans Annual uh, number two when he became Vigilante proper. Um, he doesn't really have any superpowers other than he can sort of heal quicker than the average guy. Uh, not like Wolverine levels, but just, I think, just through sheer willpower, he can heal faster from you know knife wounds or you know minor gunshots, stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, so in, out, throughout the 15 issues before this, he's been fighting crime, like like the uh, the exterminator, uh, this guy called the controller, uh, the electrocutioner, who he's currently trying to find. Um, he, he mentions him in this issue. Uh, and dealing with the fact that he is, you know, breaking the law. And this issue is actually another great issue to be jumping on, sort of, to this story, like, you know, kind of like all the rest of the issues in this episode, because this episode or this issue, he talks about this is, you know, this is Vigilante's last case. He's going to hang it up because Adrian Chase has been chosen to become a judge uh, in the District of New York, uh, which is a very, you know, prestigious honor. Uh, but he, he decides that he can do more good as a judge, committing his full attention to the law instead of splitting his time between the law and vigilanteism. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, there's a real internal struggle that makes him an interesting character, I think. But let's get into the actual issue. So this is issue number 16. Uh, it's titled Beneath the Streets of New York. Uh, and it's all about people robbing subways. Uh, and the issue cover is Vigilante in his all-black sort of full-body uh skin-tight costume with the full cowl, nothing shows on his face, but he has these really distinct uh, sort of chevrons. Imagine sort of Nightwing-esque of uh, one blue line running all the way down his arm and up uh, to a point on his chest, and then a white one right on top. It's very, it looks just like, well, not just like, it looks very similar to the one in the show, in the Peacemaker show. So, uh, and he's standing in front of an oncoming subway train and the lights are shining and it's very, very good. I will say the art in this is very, it's very eighties, but it's very colorful and vibrant. Uh, I've thought vigilante stands out against these like dark, uh, noir sort of backgrounds. It's very, it's very nice. 
Uh, but let's start in on the first page. Uh, it's 11.34 p.m. on the southbound platform of the 6th Avenue D train in New York. Uh, it's standard, you know, people on the subway. All of a sudden, the subway hits something that has been put on the track to make it sort of shake violently, causing everyone to fall out of their seats, except for one guy. He is standing up. He's holding on to the handles that hang from the ceiling. He's got a bag, and now he pulls out a gun. And he says, ladies and gents, this is a stick-up. We then cut to a rooftop. Uh, we are we are no longer in the subway, but we are seeing Vigilante, and he's holding a man wearing tattered clothes from the edge of this building. And he's wondering, he's asking him, whose name is Billy, this guy, uh, about the executioner, telling him, tell me where he is, tell me what you know. And Billy says he doesn't know anything, he doesn't know nothing. And Vigilante decides to believe him because he's too scared to be lying. That's obviously not true. Um, torture causes people to say things, whatever the person wants to hear, but that means he would say something, but since he doesn't say he doesn't know anything, then he must actually not know anything. So, Vigilante, you know, repels down off of this rooftop and gets on his high-tech motorcycle that he drives around and uh, drives back to, I'm assuming, you know, his garage, his Vigilante area, and He's reminiscing on, uh, like, what, what he's doing, why he's doing this. He's pursuing a psychotic killer that he'll probably never find before he gives it all up, um, just killing time until he is no longer vigilante and, and completely becomes Adrian Chase full-time once again uh, and takes the bench as a judge, uh, and vigilante would cease to exist. We then cut to the next morning, 10.57 a.m., uh, it paints a very, very a wonderful picture. Sunlight dances across the oily black surface of New York's East River as a subway train rumbles from Brooklyn to Manhattan. On this subway train are the normal passengers, but specifically there's a group uh, or two lawyers who uh, work with Adrian Chase. They are ongoing characters. At least one of them is Maria King or Marsha King and uh, another lawyer named Roy. And they're talking about uh, finally we're done, you know, dealing with, uh, this case over in Brooklyn, so they don't have to ride the train from Manhattan to Brooklyn anymore, and Marsha's talking about meeting Adrian for lunch, and, uh, they're talking about the derailing of the D-train last night, and, uh, that guy who robbed everybody on it, and it turns out it's, it was more than one guy, it was a group of men who robbed the entire train, uh, and, uh, so it, they, they feel very safe being on another also D train. Uh, so that's, that's fun. Um, uh, when this train also hits something and sort of derails, causing everyone to fly out of their seats. And guess what, everyone? It's a stick up. And uh, the exact same man from last night is there with his gun in his bag. And he's asking everybody to give up their valuables. He wants Marsha's briefcase. But she says, there's nothing in there that would be valuable to you. It's just legal papers. And he says, give it to me. And he calls her a stupid broad, which is not cool, dude. Like, do a rob robbery, but don't be misogynistic about it. Smacks her across the face with his pistol, otherwise known as pistol whipping. Pistol whips her in the face. And, like, 
it like there's a loud sound effect that says crack with K. So K-R-A-K, crack across her face. And in the next panel, she's like her, her eye is closed and she's got a huge bruise on her cheek. Uh, Roy, the other lawyer with her, is going to call him the B word. But before he can, uh, this guy pulls the gun on him and is going to shoot him. Uh, instead, he says, you know, like, keep your mouth shut. And he tries to take the briefcase again from Marsha. But she says, it's, well, I mean, it's mine. She, like, holds on to it. And then he kicks her in the face on the other side. This is a violent, violent robbery. He then um, tells everybody just everybody else to keep their mouth shut, mind their own business, and uh, uses the uh, secret sort of emergency opening of the doors that's hidden underneath one of the seats in the subway car and escapes along with the rest of his compatriots who were robbing the train at the same time. Marsha's face is just just beat up like to all hell. Uh, these men escape through a metal door in the side of the tunnel that they're in and the robbery is over uh, but not before the guy says see ya again suckers and then he goes hee hee like a like a uh, bad guy. Uh, we then cut to uh, several miles uptown to uh, what looks to be what we find out later is a, like a social club for rich people. Which I mean, if you look, if you could see what I'm seeing, you'd be like, oh yes, this is obviously a social club for rich people. There's ladies in fancy dresses, men are wearing suits, and they're talking about newspaper stuff, which is what I assume rich people do at their clubs. But they're talking about the derailment and the robberies that happened last night, not knowing that another one is taking place at this moment. Chase reads over the article. Uh, he skims the uh, the information about it, and he realizes that he's not looking at it through the eyes of Adrian Chase, but he's looking at it through the eyes of Vigilante. Uh, it's an automatic response, and he doesn't like it. He doesn't like the fact that he's kind of losing himself in, in being Vigilante. Uh, he wants to be Adrian Chase. He wants to commit himself fully to being Adrian Chase again. But it just he just says well, it's just good to be that we're you know we're gonna finish this. It's gonna be done. Uh, then we get a phone call, and this is something that I haven't seen. Uh, it very dates it. It dates this very much um, to to what this is. A a butler comes and he says a call for you. Shall I plug it in here? So he brings a full on phone. With the, the plug into the phone jack, there must just be phone jacks everywhere. And he just plugs it in next to Adrian so he doesn't have to get up and go to where the phone actually is. Man, being rich. Being rich, don't have to get up and go to the phone. It's pretty cool. On the phone is a Sergeant Gross. He is calling from Roosevelt Hospital on behalf of Marsha King. Immediately, this sends uh, Adrian Chase into a tizzy because, you know, him and Marsha have this sort of thing going. Uh, if it's, I don't know if it's clear if it's a friendship or if it's romantic, but uh, it, either way, uh, Adrian rushes off to the hospital, and he battles through traffic to get there, and uh, he's you know yelling at a nurse to tell tell him where Marcia is, and Sergeant Gross comes up and uh, kind of explains things to him. She's all right. She's just really roughed up. She was riding the train this morning, and, and the train robbers hit again. She tried to resist, and she got herself beat up uh, for the troubles. Uh, at that moment, Marcia is wheeled out of a room, and Adrian rushes to her side, and she says, Sorry, I missed our lunch date. And that's just the saddest thing. 
Oof. She said I had to get myself beat up instead. Wow, Marsha. Well, make cracking jokes at a time like this. And, uh, and Adrian says, it's okay. It's okay, honey. Um, they were serving horrible goulash at the club today, so don't worry about it. Hey, I mean, I like goulash, but it can, it can be pretty bad. And so then Marsha fades off to sleep, and Adrian, he's got a very angry look on his face. And he says, the train robber, or he thinks, the train robbers, the gang I wasn't going to bother with. And then he says, or he thinks, it wasn't going to be a bother any longer, because now it's personal. We then cut to across the East River in the heart of Brooklyn, and it is the, the group of train robbers. And I'm not sure if this is a dollar sign or a four, so that means they've either totally stolen $45,764 in cash and a few hundred more in gold chains and watches, or if that's supposed to be a dollar sign and it's just lettered weird, then it's $5,764. $5,764, sorry. And also enough junk jewelry to open up a whole chain of schlock stores, whatever those are. And one of the guys says, we're taking an awful lot of chances for peanuts, so I'm not sure... If they're talking about $45,000 as peanuts or $5,000 as peanuts. It's a lot of guys, so $45,000. See, it looks like there's about 10 there, so split that up. Each guy gets $4,000. That's not a lot. Uh, it'd be a pretty good wage, maybe in 1985. I don't know about inflation, so. But uh, it wouldn't last you forever. Kind of, it is a lot of risk for, you know, maybe like a month or two's worth of money. Uh, but they said, don't worry, we got one more trial run, and then it's on to the big score. And he doesn't say what the big score is. So, so you know, something big's coming. We then cut to Adrian Chase in his garage, his vigilante lair. I don't know, he doesn't really have a name for it. And he is working on his motorcycle. He says, what I didn't know about the art of motorcycle maintenance could fill a library. But I didn't have much choice, either I did it. Or it didn't get done. And he kind of reminisces on his old sort of compatriot in crime who did all his tech stuff, JJ. Uh, JJ died a few issues ago uh, in this run, and uh, Adrian looks back on it sadly. But he doesn't have a lot of time to mourn. He's got to go out and get revenge. And they say revenge is a dish best served cold, but he wants it piping hot. And then he vrooms out. Vrooms out on the motorcycle. We then cut to another train, uh, presumably another D-line train, uh, traveling along its route, and we see the devices that this gang has put on the tracks to derail it. It's about to happen. There are there's a lot of authority, like um, law law. Uh, wow, that's a law presence. The the presence of law enforcement. I don't know. There's cops on the train. It's like they're they're beefing up security on these trains because of all the stuff that's happening. That should be good, but it's it's a question of whether or not it'll be enough. These guys seem to be pretty well-oiled machine uh, in terms of robbing trains. Uh, we see Vigilante. He's driving around on his motorcycle, and he has a scanner hooked up to it that is basically showing him the subway network uh, and, and showing if any trains stop. There, he, there's sensors of some kind down there, I, I'm sure, electronically, so, you know, the transit authority knows where all the trains are at all times. So he is doing that. 
uh, and he uh, gets a ping that one has stopped, and he says it could be a stalled engine, but he's going to check it out anyways. Uh, we cut to the train. It's derailed, and we see this group of men, this group of men trailing out with their bags full of stuff, and they're mo- going into one of the uh, metal uh, doors, which uh, their leader, Keith Pitkins, uh, says are access tunnels uh, in the from the transit authority files uh, that ha- that no one else has seen for about 70 years, so no one really knows that they are still there. But before Keith can get into the access tunnel, a light shines on him, and it is Vigilante uh, with his motorcycle shining down at him. And... Uh, Keith is like, hey, what, who are you? And Vigilante says, they call me Vigilante, mister. And I'm looking for the scum who gets his kicks beating up lady subway riders. Um, he already, he's already escaped. This is their leader. So, um, it's okay. Uh, Keith ducks out of the way, uh, as Vigilante drives by on his motorcycle. He flips it around and, uh, Tries to catch Keith before he goes to the door, but unfortunately he's not fast enough. Uh, Vigilante activates a cannon that is on his motorcycle, busts through the door with that, and drives through. Uh, He drives into what's known as a siding in in train parlance, which is just a a train track that runs alongside another train track, I believe, that trains can go onto for maintenance or for troubles or stuff like that, if I'm not mistaken, any train engineers or conductors out there uh correct me if i'm wrong he uh turns onto this siding track and he sees a, an old sort of abandoned subway car and he's like ah so so that's where they've been you know kind of holding up uh this old derelict uh car uh but it's still it's still in good enough shape to run and it's running straight for him vigilante uses his motorcycle cannon again to blow the front of this car off so he can drive straight into it and he jumps off uh using the you know benefit of surprise to knock out all of these dudes before they really get the chance to get them their wits about themselves and he gets basically all of them or a a good portion of them uh before keith pitkins comes out of the uh conductor's booth and uh, starts firing at Vigilante, who has to duck behind his motorcycle. He instructs all of his men to get off the train before it gets to too high of a speed because he's activated the dead man switch, uh, or disabled the dead man switch, I should say, which means that the train will keep running if no one is there, I believe. Uh, because from the name, it makes it seem like if a dude dies, the train will stop running because otherwise it's dangerous. So if you disable that, it means that it'll keep running despite there being no one there uh, activating it. So before everybody can escape, uh, Vigilante knocks out uh, one of the guys, and coincidentally, it is the guy that uh, beat up Marsha. So that's good. Uh, that's, that's a lucky coincidence. And he's going to hold him for interrogation. But first things first, he's got to stop this train. And he is, like, flipping switches. He's trying anything he can think of. And then... We get to what's the end of this track, and there's one of those sort of big metal spring devices that catches a trains and sort of cushions the blow of this, like, high-speed train. Uh, and Vigilante's trying everything that he can possibly think of, but he's not quick enough or he can't figure it out. And the train crashes. You think, oh, my gosh, Vigilante's dead. This is really the final issue of Vigilante. But 
we don't what we don't see is uh, before the train crashed, he ran to the very, very back of the train and held on for dear life. So he didn't get flung forward when it abruptly stopped. And uh, he makes it out okay. Uh, but unfortunately, the guy that he knocked out for interrogation was not so lucky. He is dead. So in a sort of a roundabout way, Vigilante has gotten revenge for Marcia. So that's good. That's that's always good to uh, see. Uh, unfortunately, you know, Vigilante doesn't really care about killing his uh, victims. Uh, or at least he, he doesn't really feel that remorseful about that guy dying. So there's that. We then cut to an apartment. Uh, it looks like there is a, a poster of a, a naked woman on the uh, wall, which makes me think this isn't a hotel, or if it is, it's a very seedy hotel. But it looks like you know, an apartment of, of one of the gang members, likely the leader, Keith Pitkin, uh, I believe his name is. So uh, he is going to tell his men what... The actual plan is what's what the big score is. They're done with all these peanuts. They've got the kinks worked out of their plan. They're a well-oiled machine. And uh, they have also sort of tricked the police and the transit authority into thinking, thinking that they're only hitting D trains. So that's important. Their big score is going to be the nightly collection of the money from subway station gates. You know, you put your coins in. This is before they had cards, so there's a lot of cash uh, it's collected every night uh, by a train going through every single station. They do it in the middle of the night because there are fewer trains on the tracks, fewer uh, travelers, passengers, stuff like that to deal with. So the, the tracks are empty, makes it easier for the train to do its business quickly, uh, which is safer, obviously. So they are going to do their tried and true tactic of putting uh, basically these like little U-shaped things on the tracks, which is what they've been doing at every single train that they've hit. They put those down and the train then derails and uh, they're able to access the train easier because it's at a stop and it's shaking everybody up. Everybody is, you know, it's their, it's the way they've been doing it this entire time. So they're going to hit that tonight. So they all get set up uh, on the sides of the train track that the uh, collection train is coming down, and they are waiting for it to hit the derailment things. I don't. I, there's probably a technical term. I don't know what it is, but uh, they're waiting for it to hit that, and then they've got about four minutes before the transit authority and the police realize that something's wrong with this train because it's a very heavily monitored train. Obviously, it's got a lot of money. What they don't know is that this train has a secret passenger uh, riding at this moment on the roof. Uh, and you guessed it, it's it's Vigilante. Uh, he is riding on the top because, using his deductive reasoning, his sort of gumshoes, uh, you know, detective skills, he has determined that uh, with him sort of scaring these guys off of the D-trains, uh, off of hitting the D-trains, there's only really only one option for something that's train-related, subway-related, and that is a big score, and that is the collection train uh, for, you know, the, the, the subway stations, like I said. So, Vigilante has got to get on this train and stop it before it gets hit. And he does just that. He does a pretty sick move. He sort of swings from the top of the train as it's moving into an open window, into the sort of uh, conductor car. And first the conductor and the police officer, transit authority officer that's on the train are like, hey, you know, what are you doing? Got to pull a gun on him. And Vigilante, he basically says, I don't have time for this. 
you guys gotta, you know, get out of my way. So he, you know, kicks the gun out of the policeman's hand and pulls the emergency brake. And uh, they both fall down. It, it doesn't say whether or not they get knocked out or whether or not they just fall down. Uh, but he has stopped the train. He then jumps out of the train. And we then cut back to the, the train robber gang. They're waiting. They're wondering. They're like, what? It stopped. That's not supposed to happen. It's supposed to hit the derailment and derail. And the boss, Keith, is, is talking to all his men. He says, you know, uh, one of them says, think they're on to us, boss? And he says, impossible. This place would be swarmed with cops right now if they knew. And he's, he's talking. He said, must be something else. Just hang tight for a second. Let's wait. Um, and, and as he's talking to his men, he's, he's keeping his eyes on the train. Keep your eyes on the prize. You know, that's all. That's the, the wisdom. But what he doesn't know is that, you know, meticulously, methodically, vigilante using the, the element of the dark and his dark costume is sort of coming up behind each of the men one by one because they're standing in a line. They're standing on the edge of this tunnel. They're kind of keeping to the wall because that's all the space they have that's not on the train tracks. Uh, and so just one by one, he's kind of like putting his hand over their mouth and like knocking them out until the only one left is Keith. And he's, and, um, Keith, you know, he hears noises here and hears like an oof and an oomph. And he says, quiet. And he says, shut up. Uh, do you want to be caught? And then he looks around and he says, huh? And it's vigilante standing there. And he says, too late. They've already been caught. Now it's your turn. And Keith's like, oh my God. And, uh, uh, vigilante lunges at him. He sort of pistol whips Vigilante. Vigilante falls down. Keith runs towards the train. He crawls underneath the train sort of to, to get on the other side uh, and trick Vigilante. Vigilante is gotten the high ground, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi style, on top of the train. And he sort of does this really sick move. It doesn't make any sense uh, physically, but it's pretty sick. He jumps off of the top of the train and sort of, uh, he looks almost like Superman coming down, uh, and he like punches Keith in the face with the downward force of gravity uh, and his momentum. But if you think about it, then um, then Vigilante would fall flat on his face, probably hurt himself real bad. It, he doesn't because he's great, I guess, but it just doesn't really make a lot of sense. And uh, the final panel is uh, Vigilante's internal monologue. He says, he went down. There was both exhilaration and sorrow in my blow. The joy of the final battle in a long war. The sadness of endings. Bum, bum, bum. Sadness of endings. Uh, and then it has a little sort of thing. It says, next issue, a special two-part tale by the one, the only, Alan Moore, the creator of Swamp Thing. What up? Uh, that should be pretty exciting once we actually get there, but it'll be a bit before we get there. Uh, I'll have to do sort of recaps, I guess, thinking about that with how much time is in between each of these issues. That that'll be that'll be fun. Uh, but that's that's our that's the vigilante issue. I thought it was really good. Um, it, I mean, vigilante being a sort of like uh, Batman, Crimson Avenger, Sandman, Noir sort of guy, sort of not ripoff, but uh, homage, I guess. It can kind of fall into, like, the traps, but I think it did a really good job. It was a very interesting sort of, uh, not necessarily mystery, but uh, plot. It was good. Vigilante's costume is great. I, I Like, the colorist is like, this is so easy. I just make him all all black. He doesn't even have, like, face. He doesn't have, like, a nose imprint or a mouth imprint or anything. He's just all black. So he just, like, it's cool. It's very cool. 
I'll probably post a panel or two. Maybe, you know what? I'll post a panel of the uh, the gravity punch, which is what I'm calling it now, uh, in, the, in the second to last panel uh, that he takes out the boss. I think it's pretty cool. Uh, but that is going to do it for this week, for this week on uh, IBI Crisis. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, it's it's nice to, to, to some more modern stuff, focus on some more long-form uh, comic book storytelling rather than these sort of 12-page, 6-page uh, issues, stories. Uh, so it's really nice getting to some some more of the fun 80s characters and, and stuff. Detroit era, the, the post-Judas contract Teen Titans, Vigilante, who is actually weirdly... Uh, in the in the zeitgeist, sort of at the moment, Peacemaker came out like what uh, a couple years ago, maybe. Uh, has it been a couple years? Dang, time flies. Uh, but I mean, season two will eventually come up, and he'll obviously be in that. So he didn't die, did he? No, he's a, he's alive, right? I don't know. It's been a while since I've watched Peacemaker. Uh, I'll have to maybe rewatch it before the next season comes out. But enough of my rambling about Peacemaker. Um, hit us up on the social. There's gonna be I'm going to post a, a panel from each of these issues and the covers, of course, so you can see them uh, on the Instagram, which I believe is Issue by Issue Podcast, or it might just be Issue Issue Podcast, one of the two. Uh, I forget about this, this kind of stuff. Uh, hit us up there. Give us a follow. It's pretty good. Uh, post all that kind of stuff. Uh, make sure to rate us on iTunes. Us, me, the royal we. You know, rate we on iTunes. Uh, make sure to say, hey, there's actually two podcasts in this one podcast. Uh, so that's pretty cool. Uh, all that kind of stuff. You know the drill. You've listened to podcasts before. Unless this is your first, then um, in that case, thank you. Uh, but uh, until next time, we'll see you on Monday for the classic uh, issue by issue golden era or golden age. Uh, until then, uh, I'm your host, Nick Byers. See you later.